By my estimate, the busiest spot in the city of Boston is called Downtown Crossing. Several T stations intersect, several major roads run through the area, and each building hosts a different major shop or department store. Squirreled away in a back corner is a beautiful golden bookshop that sells antique tomes and recreations of maps. Thousands of people move through this area, on foot or on bike, passing each other by without a glance. Locals to the city have likely become unenthused with the historical world around them. It's just life, just old brick roads that make getting to work a little more difficult. The old buildings are part of the background for them, a typical part of everyday life in one of the oldest, most significant cities in the United States. I, however, am not a local. I'm a tourist, and a history lover at that, so all I can see are the histories, the plaques, the statues, the signposts, the telltale signs of our American story peeking through the cracks, or even, in the case of Downtown Crossing, shining in the center of this busy metropolitan center. You see, right in the middle of Downtown Crossing is the Old South Meeting House. Built in 1729 with a central structure made of brick and a gorgeous steeple that gleams in the sun, the Old South Meeting House holds far too much history within its walls for a building of its size. Along with dozens of significant historical figures being parishioners to this church when it was in operation, it also became a significant location in the debate around revolution during the years before the Revolutionary War. Perhaps one of the most significant figures who congregated at Old South was Samuel Adams. Adams was a revolutionary, an outspoken citizen of Boston, who, over the years he spent watching the oppression by the British troops, became more and more intent on revolt. This came to a head in March of 1770 when British troops opened fire on a mob of Boston citizens. Several died, more were injured, and the seal had been burst. This became known as the Boston Massacre, and you don't have to walk very far in the city to find the brick circle in the sidewalk that denotes where the attack took place. Samuel Adams, along with his friend Paul Revere, began preaching about the villainy of the British troops throughout the city. One such place where this was debated was in the private chamber of the Old South Meeting House. As years passed and tension continued to mount, Old South would hold annual remembrances of the Boston Massacre. The congregants did not forget what had been done to their kin. In December of 1773, a protest broke out at Old South against the British taxing tea. When tensions boiled over, a crew of men snuck to the harbor under the cover of night and dumped British tea into the ocean. The Boston Tea Party began at Old South. Within a year, public meetings were restricted in the city, making the Old South temporarily obsolete. When the British took Boston when the war broke out as revenge for the Tea Party, they turned the church into a riding stable and tramped their horses through the gutted central hall of the old building. It would be nearly a century until the structure was restored to its former glory. The pain did not pass. The meetings at Old South fueled revolt in Boston, in Samuel Adams, and in the colonies at large. The British, too, were passing further restrictions and regulations against the colonies as a response. Within a year of the Boston Tea Party, the revolutionaries began to plot out a greater scheme. Protests and conflict were one thing, but war was on the horizon. They met in Pennsylvania, and they called themselves the First Continental Congress. Representatives from 12 British colonies in the area arrived. Pennsylvania, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, Delaware, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Maryland, Virginia, and North and South Carolina. They made plans, set up agreements, and charted a course for the future. 
a boycott would be put into place against British goods, and a petition would be sent to King George. One little detail was agreed upon as well, an often forgotten postmark in the narrative of this important event. Twelve British colonies uniting was good, but what if they could get all the British colonies on this continent to join up, then the Brits would have no support, no foothold, and they'd lose the whole chain of land all in one fell swoop. So, when the First Continental Congress disbanded, they sent letters to the remaining British colonies. Three of them are now parts of Canada, Nova Scotia, Quebec, and St. John's Island, which is now Prince Edward Island. They also sent a letter to Georgia, who would eventually agree and become the essential 13th colony. Only two colonies that are now states in the U.S. declined to join the revolting colonies. They were West Florida and East Florida. In another world, in another universe, these two colonies could have been the 14th and 15th colonies. But that is not our world. We declined the invitation, and when the American Revolution broke out, our little peninsula was caught on the edge of America's first real war. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the season 6 premiere, and to celebrate a new year of stories, we are taking it all the way back to the American Revolution. Our involvement in that war is so often disregarded or not even acknowledged, but according to my friend in Mobile, Alabama, who you'll hear from shortly, Florida's part in the American Revolution cannot be overstated. In our first episode of 2021, the 14th and 15th colonies, the siege of Pensacola, and the precarious question, what if? I've never been to Mobile, Alabama, though I'd like to. It's a very old city, older than most current towns in Florida. From a strategic standpoint, it makes sense that Mobile is as old as it is, since it was founded at the opening of the Mobile River, which is part of a chain of rivers that cuts northeast through most of the state. Founded by the French, this port was essential in the formation of a colony that they would call La Louisiane, which would eventually, of course, become Louisiana. It was the original capital, and after a series of complicated trades during the 18th century, Mobile was, at one point, a crucial city in the British colony of West Florida. Imagine that. Mobile, West Florida. That was how it was in the 18th century. We discussed this a little bit in our first episode of 2020, interestingly, but its complexities stretch through hundreds of years of history. To sort that all out, to dig into it in depth, I called a historian who knows Mobile much better than I do— his name is Mike Bunn. My name is Mike Bunn, and I am the director of Historic Blakely State Park, and um, enjoy writing in my spare time, and I've written several books on Gulf South history. Historic Blakely State Park is just across Mobile Bay from the city of Mobile, and on a clear day, you can see the city from the park proper. Mike himself has been working in this area for most of his life and has had a lifelong passion for this region's complicated history. Just was really consumed with actual historic sites, sort of tangible aspects of history. It really intrigued me. I had a lot of fun doing it. I myself here at Alabama's largest Civil War battlefield and also a place that has a lot of connections to various other eras in Alabama's past and I couldn't be happier. 
Blakely is at the top of my list of places to visit in Alabama. The sheer density of history within its limits is incredible. The Civil War battlefield notwithstanding, they also have remnants of the original town of Blakely, as well as evidence of settlements by indigenous peoples from before colonization. But that's just Mike's day job. Late last year, Mike released a book, The Fourteenth Colony, The Forgotten Story of the Gulf South During America's Revolutionary Era. I found Mike in the first place because every Alabama historian I contacted said the same thing. If you want to talk about Florida and the American Revolution, you have to call Mike Bunn. So, how did Mobile start as a French colony, only to wind up in British hands within the colony of West Florida by the beginning of the American Revolution? Well, it starts with, who else? Spain. Going way back to the earliest explorations, going all the way back to Soto and in 1500s into the 1600s, Spain had a long-standing claim, although a pretty vague claim, to the Gulf Coast and what they called Florida. And they really got, uh, as far as on the Gulf, it really seriously involved in trying to colonize it in the late 1600s. At about the same time that France got very serious about trying to lay claim to the entire Mississippi Valley, uh, especially urged on by the explorations of LaSalle, who, who uh, attempted to find the mouth of the river, claimed the whole river valley for, for France. And when uh, France actually sent somebody to, to, to make good on that claim and locate a place for settlement or at least a fortification, Spain was just one step ahead of them and finally made the move to, to make another settlement attempt and actually establish a, a, a visible physical presence in the Gulf region at Pensacola established fortification there. Now, if you're like me and you don't live in this region of the Gulf Coast, it's essential to understand just how close Pensacola is to Mobile. There is essentially only 52 miles between them. Even for the colonial era, that is not a considerable distance. So France forms Mobile within spitting distance of Spain's Pensacola. And from those two beginnings, you have the beginnings of the French colony of Louisiana, which eventually stretched across some of Alabama and Mississippi and, of course, Louisiana northward. And then you had the neighboring colony of Spanish Florida headquartered at Pensacola. And roughly the, the boundary between modern Alabama and modern Florida, the Perdido River, uh, effectively served as the border between those two Gulf colonies throughout the early 1700s. Enter the Perdido River. While many rivers in this area are used for ports, the Perdido's central role was as a border. To this day, it is still the border between Florida and Alabama. In the 1600s, it served as the dividing line between French territory and Spanish territory. But as is so often the case, war soon broke out between these massive imperialist nations. The Seven Years' War began between the three major empires, though mostly Britain and France, while in North America, the French and Indian War broke out at the same time, a side effect of the Seven Years' War. The colonizers were feuding over land, and by the time the conflict had settled, things were changing hands. Britain won the war over France and Spain, and got to have a say in where the land along the Gulf of Mexico would wind up. Now, what happened was that after France and Spain were defeated, in the Seven Years' War with Great Britain, um, which was an international war fought between 1754 and 1762. Um, no battles were fought in this immediate area, but as a, as a consequence of having lost that war, Spain lost 
Florida. And France lost Louisiana, or, or at least the portions of Louisiana east of the Mississippi River. They, they had transferred Louisiana on the west side of the Mississippi River to Spain, but when Great Britain won the war, it acquired everything else that was, that was uh, colonial holdings uh, in North America. And what we know is the United States that was owned by France and Great Britain. And so they moved to establish two new colonies on the Gulf they called East and West Florida. In one fell swoop, Britain takes Spanish and French land. They make West Florida the land between the Mississippi and the Apalachicola, which today includes parts of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. And then they made East Florida, which is essentially all of modern-day Florida east of the Apalachicola, basically from Tallahassee onward. Which brings us to the American Revolution. As I said earlier, several other colonies besides those original 12 were invited to join the revolt. Some wound up in Canada, and the other was Georgia, who became the 13th colony. West and East Florida also received these invitations to bring the revolting colonies up to 15, but they wholeheartedly rejected the offer. Why? Were we so foolish that we didn't see the writing on the wall, or was there something greater we wanted out of the deal? Mike Bunn tells me that there is no complex explanation. It is shockingly simple. These colonies were, of course, separated from what was happening on the Atlantic seaboard and viewed themselves as, as being about as far away from that as, as you could. <laughs> uh, but they, when, when all that was beginning to happen and the colonies were beginning to organize, they encouraged and invited the Florida colonies to send representatives to the Continental Congress and participate in what they were trying to make as a continent-wide sort of alliance and a rebellion. And East and West Florida, uh, for varying levels of patriotism, decided not to. Put simply, they didn't want to. The broad strokes of American history often treat the American Revolution like a simple us-versus-them conflict, that all of the American colonists supported the revolt and the British kept stamping them down until war broke out, but that is not the case. As one would suspect, there were American colonists who did not want revolt and continued to support the British occupation and control over these lands. Calling themselves loyalists, these folks were not blind to the injustices perpetuated by the British, they just did not agree with the sentiments of violence that the revolutionaries were acting on and advocating for. They didn't think that an independent American nation could survive without direct economic support from the British Empire. Naturally, most supporters were wealthier folks less affected by the impositions the British were putting on the people, but some were workers, laborers, and merchants. Eventually, when the war went into true effect, some loyalists took up arms and joined the British ranks, defending the empire and fighting the revolution on their home turf. While the colonies of Florida were certainly more loyalist than others, another detail factored into their decision to not join, their location. West Florida, uh, it, its reluctance to get involved had a little bit more to do with its remote location, the fact that news traveled there got there very slowly, they felt um, removed from what was happening and were much more concerned with just earning a living on a widely, widely scattered settlements along a colonial frontier and were much more concerned about what was happening across the Mississippi with a neighboring colony of Louisiana, which is an enemy of Great Britain, than they were what was happening up in places like Boston. They, they, just, uh, they just saw it as somebody else's fight to a degree. And there were certainly some elements of, of the population that were very loyal to the crown, 
but it was not so much a philosophical debate, it's just a practical matter that they didn't see that as their immediate concern, and most of the things that the Sons of Liberty, etc., were railing about seemed to be things that did not necessarily impact them on a daily basis the same way they did in some of the New England towns. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting way that it breaks down, but they were British colonies and they were invited to participate. And that's where the trouble begins. They may not have wanted to participate, but they were still British holdings on British land while a war occurred against the British. The war would come to them, whether they wanted it or not. With the battles at Lexington and Concord in April of 1775, just one month before the Second Continental Congress was set to gather, war broke out between the rebels and the British Empire. The Second Continental Congress was rushed into existence, and the top of their list was to create an army led by George Washington. By summer, the Continental Army entered official skirmishes and war began to spread. Over the following months, independence was declared, but the Continental Army was constantly struggling to get off their back foot and make a serious move forward. Searching for more allies as tensions rose, they sent the formal invitation for West Florida to join the fight in 1777. They really wanted to have control of the Atlantic and the Gulf, and, and they saw they knew all the rivers through the drain through the region, uh, obviously empty to the Gulf. and. They look for ways to, to involve it, or at least to, to secure the non-involvement of, of the people in the region and what they were trying to do. And they, they also were, were trying to get um, as much as they could from Spain, who was friendly to the United States separate, not because they're friends of revolutionary efforts, but because they were enemies of Great Britain. They wanted to maintain connections with them through the Mississippi River to obtain arms and ammunition, which the Spanish were attempting to supply. There was a lot at stake. George Washington was struggling to keep his army together as the British took Pennsylvania in late September. The Americans needed a win, and West Florida could provide that advantage. They sent Captain James Willing, who had previously lived in Mississippi, alongside a crew of men, down the Mississippi River. They arrived at Baton Rouge then along the western edge of West Florida, with the official invitation. The colony declined, and Willing returned empty-handed. The Americans did not give up that easily. He convinced folks that, it, that if they would give him command of a military force and actually uh, give him some authority and some resources, that he could help secure the neutrality of the people in, the, in British West Florida to not, not take an active part against the rebellion, and that he could maintain those crucial connections with Spanish Louisiana. And they authorized him to do it, and they gave him a, a small command, gave him a, a one, one boat, and uh, the rest is, is sort of vaguely, uh, we don't really know the true extent of what he was authorized to do. We do know that what he did was, in summary, a mission of plunder, and seems like he took he took advantage of former enemies as much as doing anything to promote the interest of the United States. So it's a, it's a convoluted, crazy little raid. Captain Willing essentially goes ballistic. With a crew of army men alongside supporters that joined his campaign as he traveled, Willing showed up at British residences, asked if they were neutral to the war or sympathetic to the American cause. If they remained loyalist, he let loose the hounds and destroyed property, stole goods, and then left. It's noted that the more people that joined Willing's crew, the more likely it was that they were just bandits or raiders who were looking for a good plundering opportunity. The Spanish eventually interceded and demanded Willing depart from the river. 
James Willing was captured in October of 1778, arrested by the British and held prisoner until after the war was over. But the message was now clear. It alerted the British just to just how vulnerable they were, and, and it alerted them um, as if they needed any other reminder uh, just how far Spain was clearly willing to go in trying to hurt Great Britain while it was distracted with this revolutionary war. The Floridas and the Gulf at large were at risk. They were vulnerable, in need of support, and if they weren't fortified soon, the British would lose those territories along with everything else. It really triggered them to try to increase the, the number of troops in the colony, improve the fortifications. They truly were, in essence, trying to sit it out and willing sort of force their hand. But the, but the biggest thing of all the, the ruckus that willing caused was a very clear, stark reminder that across the Mississippi River sat a colony that was controlled by and supported by an enemy of Great Britain who was just itching for a chance to take advantage of Great Britain while it was distracted with a war that's in a bid for independence among other colonies. And it was no secret that there were fears that troops out of Louisiana could take advantage of the, of the weakly defended frontier while Great Britain was strapped for resources to try to cause some sort of chaos in the Floridas, and that's exactly what they did. On June 21, 1779, Spain enters the fray, declaring war on Great Britain. Over the following years, as the American Revolution draws to its conclusion, Spain unleashes a full-throttle assault on British holdings along the Gulf of Mexico and the Mississippi River. Bernardo Galvez, the governor of, of Spanish Louisiana, as soon as Spain declared war against Great Britain, uh, which they had been persuaded to do through a lot of negotiation with their ally France, who was, as everybody knows, already heavily involved in supporting the United States. Once they officially declared war on Great Britain, he was ready to go with a, with a plan of action to launch a preemptive strike against British interest in West Florida because he overtly, candidly, wanted to use the opportunity to take back those lands that Spain had been forced to unwillingly surrender to Great Britain in which they used to establish those two new colonies. So his first effort was to attack fortifications on the Mississippi at Fort Butte, just north of New Orleans, and then obtain the surrender of a fort at Baton Rouge. And when the fort at Baton Rouge surrendered, he forced the commander there as a part of the capitulation agreement to throw in the surrender of Natchez, even though he was well over 100 miles from Natchez. But in a lightning campaign in just a matter of weeks, he had secured the capture of three important West Florida outposts on the Mississippi River, captured hundreds of troops, almost before the British realized the war was even in their backyard. But he was determined and immediately did not give the British a chance to recover. He, he, he captured Mobile the following spring. Then there was a, another large battle uh, here in Baldwin County, Alabama, in early 1781. And immediately after that, um, he, he launches into the final large campaign. It's combined forces, Army and Navy, into the long siege of the city of Pensacola. If you have never heard that story before, you are not alone. I have no idea how I've never heard this tale of Spain essentially marching from New Orleans to Pensacola over the course of months, capturing everything in their path. 
By the time spring of 1781 rolls around, Bernardo de Galvez, then governor of Spanish Louisiana, had led his Spanish army and navy all the way down the Gulf Coast to perhaps the most important conquest of his entire career. If they could take Pensacola, all of West Florida was now theirs, and that was a big if. The British certainly did not make it easy. When the region around it became West Florida, the British made Pensacola the capital of the colony. Within a few years, the British started laying the groundwork of cotton plantations in the area, operated by enslaved Africans. By the time the Spanish were marching east along the Gulf Coast, the British were not only defending their military holdings, but their economic holdings as well. General Galvez was ruthless, however, and he had a plan. He'd take Pensacola if it killed him. And it nearly did. Galvez sent in 40 ships to the waters near Pensacola, along with 3,500 ground troops. The siege began in earnest on March 9, 1781, when the ships attempted to storm the bay but hit the ground, unable to move any further. Nine days later, Galvez led his own ship into the bay with the rest of his ships at his back, and his ground troops moving to surround the city from the west. The British battery attempted to keep them at bay, but Mother Nature beat them to the punch. A hurricane whipped up the seas and ruined the first true attempt to take the bay. Soon after, the fighting began. Cannon fire ricocheted over the water as the Spanish kept their position firm. Thousands more troops arrived, massively outnumbering the meager 2,000 within Pensacola. Galvez, analyzing and preparing for weeks on end, now with a whole army at his back, saw the breaking point in the British defenses. If they could break through Fort George, they could take Pensacola. On May 5th, they began the assault, and all hell broke loose. The ground troops moved in, the ships on the water fired at will, and the British struggled to match the offensive movements. Eventually, after four days, the Spanish successfully hit a powder magazine. The defenses exploded and fell to ruin, and the Spanish moved in through the opening. The British had nothing left. That day, May 8th, was the end of the siege, and the Spanish marched east. Pensacola was theirs again, and would remain so for another four decades. We do have to realize that Britain, Great Britain is trying to fight a war to maintain its colonial possessions that, that's across the Atlantic Ocean. And all of their resources are strained to trying to marshal every troop they can. And every man who's being forced to man fortifications defending against an unexpected surprise attack by Spain um, in theory, are men and resources that could be diverted towards a growing American bid for independence that they are increasingly finding themselves on the, the losing end of. So as the war goes on, these are resources that the British simply can't afford. And they had hopes that once they adopted their southern strategy, that you know, when, when the, the campaigns of the American Revolution in the Carolinas and Georgia, they had clear hopes that there was a more of a loyalist population there that that would, could be used to their advantage to put down the American rebellion. And and what they found was that even though there were loyalist uh, populations, there was still a significant amount of rebel sentiment, and you end up with a really bitterly contested war in the Carolinas that East and West Florida really never rose to the occasion to help. They had their own fights uh, to fight, and of course, West Florida was fighting against this, this Spanish aggression that uh, over the period of nearly three years was a, was a constant total war 
for control of the colony. So in the sense that whatever resources rich West Florida had, they clearly could not be used elsewhere. It definitely had an impact. Only a few months after the siege of Pensacola, as the British lost their grip on the South, the Continental Army was pushing the British to the end of their rope. With the Battle of Yorktown in autumn of 1781, the American cause saw itself overcome the British forces, and though it took months for the British to fully remove themselves from the war, it was clear that history was changing before them. The colonies had won. It was made official with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, with American independence now certified. And by not joining the United States, the colonies of West and East Florida were now kicked back to their captors, undoing the effects of the previous treaty. You see, back then, at the end of the Seven Years' War, Spain gave the Floridas to Britain. Now, Britain handed the Floridas right back to Spain. West Florida would eventually get broken up and become parts of modern-day Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. The Perdido eventually became the dividing line between us and our neighbors to the west, the same line that once divided the French from the Spanish all those years ago. We know how that story ends. Do you find that, that people are, are often surprised to hear that that this area of the country was, was involved in the American Revolution? And, and if they are surprised, uh, why do you think it is that, that, that this part of the story is not included in, in the sort of grander American revolutionary narrative? Well, it's invariable that, that they um, are surprised. And I think it all goes back to the fact that our American canon is that we have 13 colonies that banded together, formed the country, and you had the United States. We have forgotten that there was America beyond those 13 colonies. And had the Florida colonies joined in, we, we probably would feel much, much closer connected in this region to that part of our heritage and our origins. But I find that what most people understand of our colonial heritage in this era is this is a vague sense that colonial powers inhabited the region and controlled it but the American Revolution happened elsewhere. And, and one of my main purposes of this book is to say that the Gulf Coast indeed does have a revolutionary era heritage. It's perhaps more complex than you might have assumed because it, it's involved with the Air National War for colonial uh, power. But it's definitely associated, it's part and parcel, with the American Revolutionary Era, and I'd, I'd like us to rediscover it. We all know that story of those brave 13 colonies, how they all stepped up and fought for independence, but there was something about being in Boston, something about the Old South Meeting House that changed the way I think of the revolution. This was a real fight, fought in these real places, over a very real cause. How different would things have been in Florida had we joined the fight back then? Would the war have been won sooner? What would Florida have gained if we had become the 14th and 15th colonies? It's impossible to know. But by not knowing the true story, it almost makes us feel less important. But we were there. If you erase those parts, it ignores the truth. And by acknowledging that we have been a part of the story, that so many different elements have been a part of the story, it paints a fuller picture of how we came to be. We were right there, on the edges of history. We've been here the whole time. They just haven't been looking. Thank you. 
thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you were here. If you are brand new to this show, or even if somehow this is your first episode, welcome. It is the beginning of Season 6, a perfect place to jump in. There are some amazing stories ahead in the next few months. You've picked the perfect place to join us. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, to even learn more about the story you just heard, you can go back to our first episode in 2020 called The Shape of Florida. It goes into more details of how Florida was defined in the years after the American Revolution. You've got to check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to Mike Bunn. He is a brilliant man who taught me so much about this topic. You should definitely check out his book. It is so interesting. I've put a link to it below. Give him some support and read even more about Florida's part in the American Revolution. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week is the 100th episode. Well, kind of. We'll get into it. I'll be telling you about my hometown and how the history of Florida is happening all around us. I cannot wait for it. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. I will see you next Monday. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Happy New Year. Have a good week.